Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about book 15, chapter 11. Why do you think Kutuzov was awarded this medal? Is there anything in the chapter that gave you any insight into this? And why do you think the Tsar chose that moment to criticize Kutuzov's performance? Kara Kikar says, I once worked at a company where they sent a firm-wide email announcing the retirement of a long-time employee, then threw her a party. At the party, I saw her crying, and she told me it was because it wasn't her idea to retire. The firm strongly encouraged her to, quote-unquote, encouraged. This feels the same. Here's the prize. Get lost. I never want to see you again. Yeah, it does feel a bit like that. Look, Kutuzov was the commander-in-chief at the time that they won the war. So they have to honor him, don't they? But I also feel like now they want to go on the offensive. They want to go out and push a war. They know Kutuzov doesn't stand for that, so out with the old... And so, Kutuzov died. He was like, okay, I'm done then. <clears throat> Dead. Let's read book, uh, I mean, chapter 12. Move straight into it. As generally happens, Pierre did not feel the full effects of the physical privation and strain he had suffered his, as prisoner until after they were over. After his liberation, he reached Oral, and on the third day there, when preparing to go to Kiev, he fell ill and was laid up for three months. He had what they, the doctors called bilious fever, but despite the fact that the doctors treated him, bled him, and gave him medicines to drink, he recovered. Scarcely any impression was left on Pierre's mind by all that happened to him from the time of his rescue till his illness. He remembered only the dull grey weather, now rainy and now snowy, internal physical distress and pains in his feet and side. He remembered a general impression of the misfortunes and sufferings of people and of being worried by the curiosity of officers and generals who questioned him. He also remembered his difficulty in procuring a conveyance and horses, and above all he remembered his incapacity to think and feel all that time. On the day of his rescue he had seen the body of Petya Rostov. That same day he had learned that Prince Andrei, after surviving the Battle of Borodino for more than a month, had recently died in the Rostov's house at Yaroslavl. And Denisov, who told him this news, also mentioned Helena's death, supposing that Pierre had heard of it long before. All this at the time seemed merely strange to Pierre. He felt he could not grasp its significance. Just then, he was only anxious to get away as quickly as possible from places where people were killing one another, to some peaceful refuge where he could recover himself, rest, and think over all the strange new facts he had learned. But on reaching Orel, he immediately fell ill. When he came to himself after his illness, he saw in attendance on him two of his servants, Terenti and Vaska, who had come from Moscow, and also his cousin, the eldest princess, who had been living on his estate at Eletz, and hearing of his rescue and illness, had come to look after him. It was only gradually during his convalescence that Pierre lost the impressions that he had become accustomed to during the last few months, and got used to the idea that no one would oblige him to go anywhere tomorrow, that no one would deprive him of his warm bed, and that he would be sure to get his dinner, tea and supper. But for a long time in his dreams he still saw himself in the conditions of captivity. In the same way, little by little, he came to understand the news he had been told after his de rescue about the death of Prince André, the death of his wife, and the the destruction of the French. A joyous feeling of freedom, that complete inalienable freedom natural to man which he had first experienced at that first halt outside Moscow, filled Pierre's soul during his convalescence. He was surprised to find that his inner freedom, which was independent of external conditions, now had, as it were, an additional setting of external liberty. 
He was alone in a strange town without acquaintances. No one demanded anything of him or sent him anywhere. He had all he wanted. The thought of his wife, which had been a continual torment to him, was no longer there since she was no more. Oh, how good, how splendid, said he to himself when he cleanly laid table was moved up to him with savoury beef tea, and when he lay down for the night on the soft clean bed, or when he remembered that the French had gone and that his wife was no more. Oh, how good and splendid. And by old habit he asked himself the question, well, and what then? What am I going to do? And he immediately gave himself the answer, well, I shall live. Ha, how splendid. The very question that had formerly tormented him, the thing he had continually sought to find, the aim of life, no longer existed for him. The search for the aim of life had not merely disappeared temporarily, he had felt that it no longer existed for him and could not present itself again, and this very absence of an aim gave him the complete joyous sense of freedom which constituted his happiness at this time. He could not see an aim, for he had now had faith. Not faith in any kind of rule or words or ideas, but faith in an ever-living, ever-manifest God. Formerly he had sought him, sought him in, aims of set, in aims he set himself. That search for an aim had been simply a search for God, and suddenly in his captivity he had learned, not by words or reasoning, but by direct feeling what his nurse had told him long ago, that God is here and everywhere. In his captivity he had learned that in Karateyev God was greater, more infinite and unfathomable than in the architect of the universe recognized by the Freemasons. He felt like a man who, after straining his eyes to see into the far distance, finds what he sought at his very feet. All his life he had looked over the heads of the men around him, when he should have merely looked in front of him without straining his eyes. In the past he had never been able to find that great inscrutable infinite something, he had only felt that it must exist somewhere, and he and had looked for it. In everything near and comprehensible, he had seen only what was limited, petty, commonplace, and senseless. He had equipped himself with a mental telescope and looked into remote space where petty worldliness hiding itself in misty distance had seemed to him great and infinite merely because it was not clearly seen. And such had European life, politics, Freemasonry, philosophy, and philanthropy seemed to him. But even then, at moments of weakness, as he had accounted them, his mind had penetrated to those distances, and he had there seen the same pettiness, worldliness, and senselessness. Now, however, he had learned to see the great, eternal, and infinite in everything, and therefore to see it and enjoy its contemplation, he naturally threw away the telescope through which he had till now gazed over men's heads, and gladly regarded the ever-changing, eternally great, unfathomable, and infinite life around him, and the closer he looked, the more tranquil and happy he became. That dreadful question, what for, which had formerly destroyed all his mental edifices, no longer existed for him. To that question, what for, a simple answer was now always ready in his soul, because there is a God, and that God without whose will not one hair falls from a man's head. All right, there we go. That's the chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.